From the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. Balm for the soul, baby. We are on. And we're kicking some ass today. Your ass. And uh, we're excited to have you and your about-to-be-kicked-ass with us. My name is Sven Erlinson. I am the host of the Badass Counseling Show. I'm joined in studio by KC in the booth and Rob the Rocket next to me. Rob, what's the good word today, my man? Everything's good. Thank you very much, Sven. I'm hearing more and more from people that just love listening to the show, and they occasionally say that they hear me, and it's okay. I like that. (laughs) They hear me, and it's okay. Rob, you make the show. You make the show. Whether you are tuning in from Oslo or Tokyo, Heppenheim to Anaheim, whether you are walking, working out, or washing the dishes, we are glad to have you here. Thanks for tuning in. We've got an interesting show tonight. Two different guests. We've got Jacqueline and we've got Rachel. And we're going to talk to Jacqueline first. Rob, go ahead and uh, get us up to speed. All right, Sven, I'm happy to. Jacqueline wrote to us and said, I'm a 23-year-old buzzhead stubborn girl who has never felt I belonged anywhere. I had a mother growing up that had boyfriends and we'd end up living with whoever she was seeing. Her own love cup was full of so much shit her mother put her through. I mean, the worst things you could think of. She was sold as a child and she leads me to believe how her mother treated her, made her, quoting here, lick love out of knives. She is a domestic violence survivor. She subjected my siblings and me to horrible living situations. We didn't go to school. We were allowed to do anything. Then in 2007, we escaped in a moment of courage my mom had prayed for. Fast forward, I'm in middle school in New Mexico, and I can't find somewhere I belong. I learned to hide in stalls because everything was overwhelming. I didn't develop how other kids developed. My voice would shake, and I'd get flushed by simply talking in class. I didn't feel comfortable existing. For my first seven years, I didn't feel like I existed. I was dissociated and angry and sad a lot of my childhood. So now in the present day, I get so defensive when someone tries to make digs or thinks my self-expression is annoying. I get so mad and then sad. I wish I didn't live around so many miserable people. When will I be accepted as I am? When will someone say I'm so cool and my music taste is refreshing and open-minded? When will the love come? I've done self-therapy on myself since 2018, and I still have days when I feel so weak as if I never journaled or done any self-work. I abandon people who remind me of the pain, just want to be their friend, but I distance myself because their presence isn't comforting enough. Most of the time, I feel like people or friends are tearing me apart on the inside and I worry what they think of me. I worry I am stuck in a 12-year-old's mentality of wanting to fit in, but I never got to feel like I did. So how is that even something to be ashamed of? Jacqueline, welcome to the show. Hello. It's great to have you here. Thanks for checking in. I want to ask you right off the bat, what are your music tastes? Like alternative, sometimes rock. R&B, like experimental music um, that the everyday person would think it's kind of weird and eccentric. Very cool. I think alt and rock and R&B on the experimental side, I think that's cool. Rob, thoughts? Rob, the music guy. Fabulous. Who did a third of his full career in music. Yeah, that sounds great. I got to ask you just for clerical reasons, because I'm guessing a few of our listeners may not know what a buzz head is in one sentence or less. What the hell's a buzz head? 
buzz head is when you shave your head kind of like um when people go to like the military or okay. whatever they like buzz cut their head got it yeah got it yeah uh okay one of our one of our producers had looked it up and wasn't sure because we sort of know that phrase a similar phrase you know buzz cut that sort of thing but if you look it up online there's an alt, another meaning that means uh a person who smokes a lot of weed a lot a lot a lot so i didn't know oh. i just wanted clarification on that um it's yeah. definitely a haircut thing okay uh next i want to <laughs> know you mentioned in 2007 we escaped in a moment of courage my mom had prayed for uh escaped what she never married so it was a boyfriend so it was my sister's father gotcha. my sister's father gotcha okay thank you for clearing that up you say in your one two third sentence and subsequent sentences you say her her own love cup referring to your mother her own love cup was full of so much shit her mother put her through i mean the worst things you could think of she was sold as a child and she leads me to believe how her mother treated her and made her lick love out of knives she's a domestic violence survivor i found that interesting that you're calling in for counseling on you and you are your third sentence in and you're not talking about yourself your childhood anymore you're talking about your mother and you spent four sentences telling me about your mother. I counted the number of sentences in your entire write-up, and there were 22. Four of 22 is about 18, almost 19%. So almost one-fifth of your description that you sent to us has to do with your mother and how hard her life was. Not what your mother did to you. That is in other sentences. This is strictly about how hard your mother had it. I have to ask the question, and maybe you didn't even think about that when you're writing, and it's totally fine. I'm not attacking you or upset or anything like that. I just find it curious that you're writing in to tell us about your problems, and you felt the need to tell me four sentences about your mother's problems. Why do you think that is? I did it intentionally because I know, I know that when I was in her womb, I carried a lot of her own abuse. So it's really like we're really connected, uh, not just because she's my mother. It's because we, I, I know that I'm her child for a reason and to help her grow and to stand up for herself because I don't take any shit wait from a minute, anyone. Wait a minute, wait a minute, um, uh, stop. So, you had said, I know I'm her child for a reason. And then you said to help her grow. Mm -hmm. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you exist the way you're telling it, you exist for her needs. Is that correct? You paused and you're still pausing. Yes okay. and no. Go ahead. I, I want to hear yes this. Yes and no. Well, I think that she did have her children to fill her cup of love. I do think that it's reciprocal. Like um, I need to tend to her needs and she needs to tend to mine, which is she's not really good at. Okay. So just so I'm clear, I need to tend to her needs and she needs to tend to mine, which she's not really good at. And just so I'm clear, why is it? And I'm going to assume, I'm assuming when you say I need to tend to her needs, you're not just talking about 23. I'm assuming you're saying this has been the pattern pretty much your whole life, or has she undergone some radical transformation of character? And this is some new thing. It's been that way your whole life? You've been sort of tending to her needs? Kind of. Kind of because she would, because she was so wounded, she would like take it out on us in a way. Like how? Like Sometimes. How? Take it out on us how? She would like yell at us and 
kind of smash uh, bowls and plates on the floor and just like like a toddler would throw like a tantrum and um, when when was she happiest with you when you were doing what listening to her problems or when you were hugging her or telling her how wonderful she was or when uh, when was she most pleased with you or felt like you were meeting her needs it was reinforced whenever i would clean the house um it didn't feel like unconditional love and i know that now it felt very conditional in the way that i would have to do something instead of being someone um I would have to do something in order to get that like acceptance or a little bit of affection or anything. Can I ask you a question? Do you um, uh, hope to have kids of your own someday or is that not really your thing? Everybody's different. There's no right or wrong answer. No, never wanted. And that's just fine. I'm just curious what the reason is. I wouldn't see myself like giving birth and I don't really have a passion to like nurture a child. Why do you think that is? And that's, Perfectly normal. Nothing wrong with that. I support you a hundred percent. Okay. I am curious though. What's the reason that you really, you know, wouldn't want to nurture a child or what have you? I would say that I don't want that, but I also think that it has something to do with my upbringing. And what might it have to do with um, your upbringing? If you were to take a, just take a swing at it, take a shot at it, you change your mind tomorrow. How might it be related to your upbringing? I've had like sexual mm-hmm. abuse. So I I don't want to like reproduce just because I am a woman. Yeah. And it just doesn't feel like it's in my path. Nothing wrong with that. All right. But let me ask you a question though. If you were to have children, would you consider it the child's responsibility to meet some of your needs on a hypothetical level? Would you consider it the child's responsibility to tend to your needs? No. Why is that? It would be my responsibility to know what I would need and what I would have to do to get those needs Ah. met. So you're saying, just so I'm clear, it's the parent's job to know what the child needs and to help uh, get those needs met for the child, presumably because, well, (laughs) you're the adult, right? The parent is the adult and has all the power and the child is, well, a child. Uh, I assume, yeah, yeah, of course. So then what you're fundamentally saying is that's an indictment of your mother's parenting, isn't it? Because you just said that it's the parent's job to take care of the child not the child's job to take care of the parent and yet you one of your opening sentences was was basically that i was i know my purpose in life is to take care of my mother and hers to take care of me but you just got done saying that it would not be your child's purpose in life so i'm curious why do you identify your purpose in life as something that you yourself explicitly state you are against you are against a child having to take care of a parent, yet you're saying that you see that as your identity or part of it. I think it's because whoever your caregiver is or like the person, like you're like, you need someone to bond to as a child. Sure, sure of course. So I would say her problems became my problem because whoever she was abused by would abuse us. That makes total sense. That, and, and that you're, you are firing on all cylinders. The part I'm not understanding, though, of course you're going to be abused as well. I mean, that makes sense. Uh, though, in, in, optimally, if there's going to be abuse, you would hope the one who's being abused would get the kids the hell out of there, or at the very least, make sure I'm taking all the blows so the kids aren't taking any. But that aside, that's not really what you said, though, earlier. You said, I see it as my responsibility to take care of my mom. 
I know my purpose in life is to help her grow. And you said, take care of her and she's supposed to take care of me, though she really doesn't do it. So in other words, that you see it as your identity to take care of her. You see it as part of your identity to take care of her. And I asked you, is this a new phenomenon? Was it this massive change of character? And you said, no, it's pretty much been there the whole time. So since you were a child, you've seen it as your identity to take care of your mother. Yet, when I asked you if your child would have to take that on, you're basically like, oh, hell no. So I guess I'm wondering, if you don't see it as a child's responsibility to take care of the parent, why are you taking care of your mother? At what point do you stop if it's not your fucking job? And is it possible that your misery in life is tied to the fact that you haven't mattered? Your mother has mattered and you've been expected, even as a child, to pour love into her love cup. And you even said, and she doesn't really do it in return. So you're doing all the giving and she ain't doing none. She's doing all the taking. Is it any wonder? What's the underlying message that a child gets if they're taking care of an adult and the adult is not giving love in return? That they're even taking care of an adult at all. Isn't the underlying message to the child that you really don't matter and your feelings and your needs and your wants really don't matter? I mean, is it something else or what am I missing here? I think uh, because she was, because we were in abuse, I think it becomes less about um like of course i believe what you say now as an adult mm-hmm. but as a child 100%. i had to play that 100 percent. no out. i get it and when you're when you're a child you want nothing more than to see mommy happy or see daddy happy and to take care of them and i totally get as a child you you have no fault <laughs> i'm not in any mm-hmm. even as an adult I, I you have no fault i'm not faulting you at all what I'm trying to do is extract you from a belief system that you don't even believe in. You literally said, my child would not have an obligation in any way basically to take care of me, and yet you are engaging in that very obligation. Um, and it raises the question of, to what degree are you trapped in that? What would be the consequences if you were to this day not engaged in still making your life about making mom happy in some way or another? Or have you disconnected from your mom? Or where does the relationship stand presently? Presently, I have, after doing much inner work and Mm self-therapy, I have forgiven her for everything that she's inflicted onto me. Why? Um, But I I did have a no contact um, almost like a year. Why did you forgive Uh, her? I'm just curious. Why did you forgive her? What was the purpose? I forgave her because I... I realized that I had to give her mercy for what she had gone through. Why? And to understand. Why? Why did you said I had to? And I'm wondering where the had to came from. Who told you that you had to give her mercy for what she had gone through? Because you didn't cause anything that happened to her, but she caused what happened to you. Mm-hmm. You were. Okay. Uh, just out of curiosity, uh, how many siblings do you have? I have six siblings. And you are where in the pecking order? I'm in the last three. So I'm. She was how old when she had you? To last. She, uh, roughly. I don't remember. Approximately. That. How, Maybe 30. Okay. How old is she today in her early to mid 50s? 51. 51. Okay. So she was about 28. 
when she had you. So she was five years older than you are now. Um, and she had uh, six children. And so you mentioned that I had to forgive her. And I'm wondering where the had to came from. Who said you had to forgive her because of all that she had gone through? Who told you that you had to? It was that I had to let it go to, in order to have like peace. Who told you that? Because you obviously don't have peace, otherwise you wouldn't have written in my show. You said uh, you've talked about feeling uh, abandoned, you're feeling left out, feeling like you don't connect with people. So you clearly don't have peace. And given what you have mm -hmm. gone through, I actually can totally understand why you don't have peace inside. And especially that childhood, my heart bleeds for you, kiddo. I mean that 200%. But I guess where I'm wondering is, who sold you on the notion that you had to forgive in order to have peace? Whose idea was that? Where did that come from? Who was sort of the one planting that seed? Was that your religion? Was it your friends? Was it an adult in your life? Was it a parent? Was it a sibling? Who, where did you get there? Just society at large? Where do you think you got that uh, influence? It really did feel like I had worked through all the anger and the sadness and grieving of a relationship that I never had with her that I would have liked to. Um, okay, that's fair. I think it was just a closing of a of the pain and the grieving. Okay, that's fair. Let me ask you then. Um, you said for my first seven years, I didn't feel like I existed. I was dissociated and angry, and sad a lot of my childhood. Just out of curiosity, who are you mad at? Who are you angry at? I was angry that the abuse was continuing. I see. And who were you angry at? I was angry at. My little sisters that were connect, like they're her, they're my mom's boyfriend's daughters. Mm -hmm. So I was angry when they would tell on any of the the rest of our siblings. Basically, they would like be telling and like keeping the abuser like kind of informed, which I know they didn't mean to do that in a malicious mm -hmm. way because they were children. Mm -hmm. But I had a lot of anger. Well, yeah, them. you were a kid. That's totally understandable. Um, have you ever been angry at your mother? And if so, how long did it last? Was there a period of your life where you were angry at your mother at all? And maybe not. I'm just curious. Yeah, I was I was going to add that it was the sisters, my two younger sisters, and my mom, and my brothers as well. And again, uh, how long did your anger at your mom last? I would say it's been my whole life on and on. On and off, like. But now it's gone. Sometimes it gets triggered. Okay. Sometimes. Gotta ask you. You said you forgave her. You felt like you had closed the chapter on that life and the anger, and so you forgave her so that you could let go and have peace. And now you're telling me uh, you didn't go through it all because you still get triggered. You still have anger at mom. Sort of. It's kind of like a system in the family where they don't change as people. Uh, they change somewhat but not to the degree that I would like and I should have told them that I wouldn't have contacted them without them going to seek therapy or do inner work because I I believe that and just out of curiosity your anger at your mom you said you pretty much were angry at her your whole life what would you say was was the percentage level that it generally the average percentage level of your anger at your mom over the course of your life, was it 20%? Was it 87%, 43%? What would you say was the anger level on average over the course of your lifetime? 85. 85%, okay. 
and 85%. But then when you did, you know, that chapter is done and you forgave her, then it went down to zero. Is that correct? No, I felt like at the, in the moment, I felt it go down to like a 5%. What do you think in your lifetime you're most, you've been most angry at her for in one sentence or less? What's the biggest thing? I'm sure there were many things, but what was the biggest thing or what is the biggest thing? What really is the crime that your mother committed against you? What really are we talking about? Because you're obviously a very intelligent person. I can tell in how you answer your questions and and you're articulate and so forth. So I'm sure you've given this quite a bit of thought, you know, given you did all that self-healing and so forth. So what ultimately in one sentence or less is the crime that your, your mother committed against you? I would say it's what you had said to make me doubt my inner voice. Mm. And that really enrages me. Mm. And how do you think, again, in one sentence or less, making me doubt my inner voice, what was the single biggest thing that she did that caused that to happen? Either a one-time action or a consistent action that caused you to doubt your inner voice? She would say that I was like worthless and she would yell at me, like put me in a shutdown state. Um, And yeah, it was everything that she would like rebuttal, like kind of like, refuse my truth. Yeah, that makes total sense. Rebut and refuse your truth, tell you you're worthless, uh, put you into a a shutdown state. Is it really any wonder then that, uh, you know, when you're in school, you felt like you didn't exist and um, your voice would shake and you'd get flushed by simply talking in class. You'd been so conditioned to believe that you suck. You're worthless. So of course you're going to be afraid to open your mouth and of course, you're not going to develop, you know, in a in a sort of a pattern that the way other kids developed. You would you were eating so much shit at home from the person whose job it was to protect you. You yourself said it was my job. <laughs> it was my job to help her grow and her job to help me grow. My job to attend to her needs and her job to attend to my needs. She not only didn't attend to your needs, she tore you down. She cut you off at the knees. And, and, and to the point where now, even today, you consider yourself weird, wondering when love will come, which is very, very normal. There isn't a 23 year old alive that isn't wondering when love is going to come. That's very normal. But for all the self therapy you've done, it's like at times I feel, still feel so weak and I abandon people who remind me of the pain, which tells me the pain is still in there. Because if it's just memories in you, there's no emotional charge. So there's still emotional charges. It's compartmentalized, I believe. Oh, sure. Sure it is. Sure it is. And one of the, the reason I was sort of um, pushing on the forgiveness thing is very often people will push forgive, for forgiveness, but the pain is still in them. They're not, they haven't done the work of getting the pain, the fears, and the bullshit beliefs they've been taught about themselves out of them. And so they're sort of papering over it by saying, I forgive you. Gee, let's mend the relationship. Or at the very least, hey, I'm going to do it for myself. But you're not really doing it for yourself because the pain is still in there. So if you say basically... People that remind me of the pain, that says the pain is still in there. So there's still more work to do. You've, you've done great work. I mean, considering what you came from, good Lord, you've done great work. And I, I, I'm, hats off, I'm cheering for you, but there's more to do. There's more to do. Uh, I, I have a question for you. Um, uh, personal question, but you've been very open the entire time. So I'm going to go ahead and ask if that's okay with you. And if you don't want to answer it, say, fuck yeah. off. Uh, you can say that to me. That's okay. I won't be offended. Never. Um, but all right, in your lifetime, what would you say the level, the percentage of 
uh, self-hate has been. Have you hated yourself ever? Has it been consistent or uh, sort of there? And if so, what would you say the percentages of self-hate that you've averaged over your lifetime? Have you had it? I would say I've had self-hate before. Um, the percentage I feel like has changed um, throughout my life. It's changed, but I would say, I would say a good 80%. 80%. Right. Right. And it's, uh, I'm just looking at that self-hate number and, and I'm just curious, what do you think your average hate level for your mother has been in your life? Have you ever hated her? I mean, I know you've said you're angry, but have you ever hated your mother? At times, yes. I would say I hate more her behavior than her herself. Hmm. You're able to differentiate those two, that her behavior is not an indicator as an adult, her in behavior is not an indicator of who she is? No, because I know to her core that she's a loving person. And I believe that in in every person, like you say, um, they don't get born hating on themselves and with evil and stuff like mm, that. Right. Um, and so what would you say your general, either the highest hate level you've had for your mother in your life or the average hate level you've had. And you said, at times I hated her. So of those times when you hated her, what would you say was the sort of the average hate level? The average, I, I would say like probably 75. So if I'm hearing you correctly, then um, you have had a lot of self-hate in your lifetime. Uh, and at times you've hated your mom. And your average level of self-hate is 80%, but your average level of mom hate is 75%. You have been conditioned to hate yourself more than you hate your mom. Yeah. The child was raised, the child was raised to hate herself, to believe that she's worthless, to shut down, to uh, have her voice squelch when mom would rebut and refuse. And yet you believe deep down that she is a loving person at her core. Yet you have had 80% of self-hate. Do you believe that at your core you are a loving person? Yes. Do you believe at your core that you are a good person? Yes. Do you like you? I do, yes. That's good. I'm going to recommend, Jacqueline, that, and you can, again, tell me that I've totally missed her or whatever. I don't believe that all the anger is out. And with all the anger is all the pain. Um, and I think that you are conditioned. Remember when I said four of your sentences are her own love cup was full of so much shit her mother put her through. I mean, the worst things you could think of, she was sold as a child and leads me to believe how her mother treated her, made her look love on a knife. She is a domestic violence survivor. You are programmed to think of her. Literally on your third sentence, you're giving a defense of her. You're thinking about her feelings and all she has gone through. And I think what is at the root of your pain is that you are so conditioned to worry about everyone else's, but particularly mom, or your what was your primary caregiver? Well, if your primary caregiver is conditioning you that your feelings don't matter and that you're worthless and that you need to make your existence about taking care of me, then that is going to be the pattern that gets set in place. And so that your worth, your own sense of worth deep inside of you, you've been conditioned to believe, only comes when you are pleasing someone else, worrying about their feelings, worrying about their thoughts, and so on and so forth. And so your belief system is, A, I'm worthless, B, my feelings aren't important. My, I exist to take care of mom. That's a problem. That belief system is a serious problem. You do not exist to, no child exists as if it was written onto their purpose in life. 
to take care of a parent. If at some point after not taking care of it, after setting yourself free from that belief, if you then choose, choose to go back and take care of that adult or help out, that's a choice. But you never had a choice. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Did you ever have a choice in that whole contract that you now claim is your identity? Did you ever have a choice? No. Exactly. Your childhood was robbed from you, Jacqueline. And, and on top of it, she's, you said she did these horrible things to us. And we don't have time to even get into it. But horrible living situations and, and said these terrible things. And yet you're still responsible for taking care of her. Do you understand how someone like myself or someone listening to your story uh, might find that problematic, might feel really, really bad for Jacqueline and be very, very unhappy with your mother? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think deep down inside you, you have a lot of fucking pain and a lot of fucking rage at your mom. I really do. And until that comes out, no matter that you say you've closed a chapter and you've forgiven, moved on with your life, you haven't. It's still in there. And you're spending energy suppressing it at the expense of your own happiness. I have news for you, and I know you've heard me say this because you've already sort of quoted it before. There wasn't a goddamn thing wrong with you when you came out of the womb. Nothing. You were beautiful. You were a wonderful child, as every child is. And all this crap that you're weird and that mom is so much more important and your purpose is her, and it was all lies from someone who is a horrible parent. Horrible. I mean, calling your child worthless, what is that? She may have given you love at other times, but there is also a point where any love you're giving is completely outweighed by the messages you're sending to the child. I think you can probably see that, right? Right. right. So before I let you go here, I wanna ask you a final question, uh, Jacqueline. What's going on inside of you right now? Even though I had had a lot of... Um, hate for myself it was shame and pain and guilt that was not mine to hold amen but i had believed that it was mine uh, that i caused everything that i had welcomed it in some way mm -hmm. and none of it was yours you were just a sweet kid any shame any guilt it wasn't your fault you didn't do a damn thing wrong you were a child just trying to survive and your mother really did nothing to protect you. And in fact, she made it worse. And she smashed dishes and yelled and called you horrible names and so forth, destroying that <laughs> child's character. Children, you know, children are so impressionable and so forth. And you didn't do anything wrong. And at some point, at some point in your self-work, Jacqueline, you got to give yourself grace and you got to say that child was innocent. You've got you've to gotta write letters to little seven-year-old Jacqueline, and maybe even have Jacqueline, seven-year-old Jacqueline, write letter to you. And you've got to tell that little Jacqueline it was, no, it was never her fault and reparent her and say those sweet things to 10-year-old Jacqueline and tell her mm -hmm. that she's wonderful and tell her that her music tastes when she's 12 are crazy wonderful, right? But the, the anger at mom, the disappointment, the sense of betrayal, the hatred, sadness, all of it has to come out. And as well as the realization that she really has never met my needs. And it's reasonable to assume after 23 years that she's probably not going to be doing it anytime soon. And then you have to begin to make your life about you purging the pain. And the more you purge out all that crap, the more your own joys and dreams will naturally bubble up. And I tell, I got news for you, Jacqueline. You're smart. You're a lovely person. 
and you are going to find so many people in your life. They're going to find you that think you're just fantastic. And I mean that. I mean that. The woman I've been seeing for 10 years, she said, Sven, you are absolutely the weirdest person I've ever known. And that's the primary reason I'm with you. She said, I want a man who holds my attention and you're just weird and I love it. Weird? And weird. There are people that love weird. There are people you that- You don't seem like stranger weird at all. <laughs> I lived, I gave up all my life possessions and lived on the street, went and ministered to and lived among the homeless for two and a half years in Oakland, California, sleeping on concrete every single night uh, for two and a half years, I did not have a, uh, two nickels to rub together. I worked in, I would work multiple jobs and you know what you ask anybody who knew me from childhood, I was a fucking wing nut and I was a pain in the ass. And Wait, you chose to do that? Yeah, I chose to do that. And you don't think my parents thought I was nuts, but by that point, you know, I'm in my late thirties, early forties, whatever it was. And my mom, you know, my dad had been a pastor and, and all that. By that point, mom spoke for mom and dad. And I was the youngest of six kids. Mom spoke for mom and dad when she said, Sven, I only get surprised when you do something out of character. In other words, of course, you're going to live on the, uh, on the streets with the homeless. It's just the next weird thing. And you just do weird. She was basically saying, Sven, you're the weirdest motherfucker I know. Of course, you're going to do that and go with our blessing. Yeah. yeah, no, weird is great. Weird is great. Different is great. Different. In fact, we had a, a poem before I let you go here. When my first child was born, when uh, my son was born, uh, I wrote a poem on the wall in paint in all different colors and different fonts and stuff. Um, and, I, and I want you to Google it and look it up and read it and take it to heart. And we raised our children, uh, even after we divorced, we raised our children under this ethos. And the name of the, the, name of the poem is, Here's to the Kids Who Are Different. And it, it's, it's a great poem and I've forgotten who wrote it. Um, and it's along the lines of, here's to the kids who are different, the kids with a mischievous streak, the kids who have, who have a nose twice the size of their toes and something that runs on for days. Here's to the kids who are different, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it ends with, because when they have grown as history has shown, it's their difference that makes them unique. Your differences are what make you unique. And they're gonna be so many people that love you because you hold their attention, because you have the courage to be goddamned original in a very bland and normal world where people just wanna stay stuck inside safety and you've chosen to be different. And I am giving you a standing ovation on that, Jacqueline. Jacqueline, you've been a great guest. Thank you so much for being on the show. You're wonderful. Thank you. It was a, it was, really nice to finally have like met you and like been on the podcast because i was surprised that i got picked out of like many you know i just thought like there's like more stories that are way deeper i don't i don't know no there are a lot of people that can resonate with your story where they they got shafted they got their own voice taken away from them so a lot of people are like connecting with you today jacqueline thank you so much for being on the show thank you i I'm so glad that this opportunity like came to me. Like, thank you so much. You gave me hope. You're welcome. And coming right up, my second guest, Rachel, after this short break. Hi, this is KC. There's an update from the Badass Counseling Desk. The audiobook version of the book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, is now available exclusively only at badasscounseling.com. My best friend made me listen to some podcast, said it had blown her away. So we listened to a lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show together. All I can say is, wow. 
First podcast I had ever listened to. Now it's my addiction. If you haven't done it yet, you need to subscribe to the Badass Counseling Show. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. And we are back with a badass counseling show. And we've got our second guest, Rachel. Rob, would you please read to us what Rachel wrote in to you? I am happy to do that, Sven. She said, I came across your TikToks and they resonated with me. I'm a 38-year-old woman who, obviously, having a solid Irish heritage, was raised in a conservative Catholic parish. I have experienced a lot of trauma, physical, sexual harassment by a school administrator from age 12 to 14, and bullying by peers to the point of physical abuse where I sustained injuries as well as kidnapping and sexual assault at 14 by a friend's father. Lastly, losing my adopted second father to suicide in 2005. Through all of my trauma, I have tried to maintain my faith and live as a good Catholic. As someone who has always had a heart for people and as a social work major in college, I have begun realizing that there are teachings of the Catholic Church that I cannot and will not subscribe to. As I've been deconstructing my faith over the last few years, I have realized just how much what I was taught by my faith and by my parish has played into the difficulty that I have had in healing from all of my trauma. Part of me wants to walk away from the faith completely because of the damage done, but I am struggling with an immense amount of guilt where leaving the Catholic faith is concerned and have been feeling a lot of fear about the possible eternal consequences of leaving the faith. I am stuck between staying in my faith and continuing to hear toxic and damaging messaging, but where the eternal reward will hopefully be there, versus walking away altogether and either finding a new faith or not practicing any faith for a while while I work on my healing. I've become stuck in this place and could use guidance. Rachel, thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. I want to, first of all, say that I, I'm so sorry for the bullying that you experienced by your peers uh, to the point of physical abuse and injuries, as well as the physical sexual harassment by the school administrator. That's, uh, that's horrible. And I, I, I want you to know I, I'm, I'm so sorry you had to go through that as a child. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, There's absolutely no support from the school either. That's awful. That's awful. There, and, was, there were those that knew. And when it finally did come to light, I had a teacher pull me aside and said, don't think you're going to play the victim now. Oh, you know, wow. don't think you're going to get him in trouble. That's cruel. That's that's cruel. And uh, boy, talk about silencing a child. Okay. And so I want to then move forward to something you said a little further down. As I've been deconstructing my faith over the last few years, I realized just how much what I was taught by my faith and by my parish, so you're drawing a distinction there between the two, has played into the difficulty that I have had in healing from all of my trauma. And what specifically are we, you referring to when you say just, I realize how much I was, what I was taught by my faith and by my parish has played into the difficulty of my healing. What specifically was taught that has challenged or obstructed your healing? So I was 12 years old, uh, Sound Creed Catechism. And one night our male catechism teacher sent all the boys out of the room. They were allowed to go outside, socialize, do what they pleased. And he sat all of us girls down and told us, you know, as young women, you need to be very careful how you dress, how you act, how you speak, how you behave, how you otherwise present yourself in front of men. Because if you even inadvertently 
present yourself in a way where that man starts to feel lust toward you or starts to become turned on by you and they act on that, that's not on them. That's on you. Right. Because you somehow tempted them. Okay. So, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, I mean, that became kind of the foundation on going forward on where the messaging from my faith and specifically in my parish has come from. Yeah. And so we realized that the village idiot was put in charge of teaching confirmation. Either that guy was an absolute dipshit or he was some sort of bigot or he was actually selling the company line. Which do you think it was? He was selling the company line. Okay. So, so your parish, your, your parish believed that at the time. Can I ask yes. how old are you, Rachel? I'm, I just turned 38. 38. That's right. Okay. You draw a distinction between your faith and your parish. So you do see, I'm guessing, that some parishes are preaching a different message in certain ways or emphasizing different things, um, selling the faith differently than other parishes. Would that be a safe statement or inaccurate? So not until recently. Up until the last three years, that was not the case. Every parish that I attended really had the same messaging. And it wasn't until I went for my MSW at a Catholic college where this college is much more liberal despite being Catholic that the messaging started to change. And so what would you say then uh, was, I'm going to sort of ask the same question again, it's this, what was the single biggest thing about your faith or parish that has obstructed your life healing the very most? Was it that instant by your catechism teacher, or is it one of the greater teachings of your faith that has really obstructed your personal healing and growth most? I would say probably the bigger thing that's obstructed is this messaging of, uh, like the first guest, you have to forgive. You have to forgive. You have to forgive. You know, all you're doing is holding on to it if you don't forgive. You you know, God says if you don't forgive, you know, you won't be forgiven either. You have to forgive. Mm. Yeah, um, that's a tricky little statement that, uh, you know, if you have to forgive, God says that if, if you don't forgive, uh, <laughs> um, you won't be forgiven. In part because, well, it's in the Christian New Testament or in the Christian Bible. Um, And the problem with that, of course, is that it was written by men and Jesus didn't write it. It was actually written 100 years, 60 years after Jesus lived. So not only did Jesus not read it, Jesus not write it, Jesus never endorsed it right? So it's men quoting. So the notion that we know definitively that God said it, you know, gets a little little sketchy there, right? Especially when we take in the Q source and so forth. It's pretty much accepted among scholars that most of the epistles, the rest of the books of the Christian Bible, or what they refer to as the New Testament, were written by Paul of the Gospels themselves, it's accepted that John wrote one and Matthew wrote one, and they were, in fact, immediate apostles, and that the other Gospels were written by some of the larger group of followers, um, although there are debates about that and the Q source and so on and so forth. Uh, but Jesus didn't write the Bible, and the notion that God said it or that even Jesus said it is questionable because Paul came so many years after Jesus. That's interesting because I was going to say it's interesting only because I was not taught that. I was taught that, like, Jesus, like, breathed on the apostles and like the apostles were given this word by Jesus. Like yeah, this was yeah. directly from Jesus. Well, and yeah, and, and a lot of kids, you know, what we're taught in Sunday school, you know, we kind of think those things, but none of the people who wrote the Bible were in the upper room. 
Paul. That's really you know, interesting. Oh yeah, Paul writes Galatians. He writes Corinthians. He didn't fucking come around till later, right? You know, or or you know, John. You know, the beloved, or it may be a few of them. You know, but a lot of that shit that's wonderful shit that's in the Bible. You know, like particularly all the letters of Paul. He wasn't in the fucking room. He wasn't. Paul came later. You know, so anyway, not none of them that wrote it. But the point is, most of the Christian Bible, Christian New Testament, not the point really, though. What we're looking at, though, is you're struggling between your faith and, you know, sort of what you do believe and what you don't believe, this notion of you have to forgive. And I guess, and then you make this statement down below. Um, I'm struggling with an immense amount of guilt where leaving the Catholic faith is concerned and have been feeling a lot of fear around the possible eternal consequences of leaving the faith. And presumably what you fear the very most is that if I leave the faith, what? That I'm not going to heaven, that that's it. Like there will be no, you know, there's nothing after So that. just so I am clear, every single human who is not Catholic, even if they are the most wonderful Episcopalian, even if they are the most devout Greek Orthodox Christian, even if they are just like the humblest, most cool ass, loving uh, Jewish person, they are fucked. If you are not a Roman Catholic, you are fucked. Is that correct? Yes, that's what that's what's been drilled into me my entire life. Fair enough. Fair enough. That all other faiths are basically like they're all wrong. The only one that's right is the Catholic faith. Fair enough. And everybody gets the chance to believe whatever the hell they want to believe. And you can sell whatever beliefs you want to sell. And if people want to follow it, hey, go for it. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, when we start killing people because of it or, you know, indoctrinating children that you can't wear a dress because then men have the right to rape you. Now we're going a little wackadoodle, right? But the notion of you're going to go to hell, you can sell that and, and you can buy it, which then raises the question you said. I'm struggling with an immense amount of guilt where leaving the Catholic faith is concerned and have been feeling a lot of fear around the possible eternal consequences of leaving the faith. Specifically, I won't get into heaven, i.e. I'll go to hell or purgatory or, you know, whatever. I ain't going to the good place. It's going to be very hot where I go. And, and to quote the great writer from Saturday Night Live, Jack Handy and his deep thoughts, he says, and I include this in my next book that's coming out, he says, one good thing about hell, I think, is you can probably pee wherever you want to. Okay, anyway, back to the point. You said that you, you fear the possible eternal consequences of leaving the faith, specifically that you won't go to heaven. So I have to ask, really, what I believe to be the ultimate question. What do you believe? Tell me, Rachel, what do you believe? I don't care what anybody else is selling now. I want to know what Rachel, because Rachel is 38 now. She's not eight anymore. Rachel has been exposed to other things. She has been to a more progressive or liberal or, and, uh, you know, Catholic faith. And she's become a woman in her own right with obviously a very astute mind. If you have your MSW, very honorable degree. One of my brothers had his and spent his life doing that sort of work. And so I have to ask, what do you believe about heaven and hell? right now one sentence or less i've always believed that really as long as i'm a good person there's not going to be an issue but there's also been that fear of, but what if i'm wrong and what if you're wrong what if we're all wrong what if the catholics are wrong what if it's only the uh, methodists that get in then all those catholics are fucked what if what if there is no heaven or what if there's only jewish hindu heaven because they're all such pleasant people 
in the end, we're all just listening to our heart and we're all trying to discern how God or the universe or soul is speaking to us. And what you have just said to me is, I believe as long as you're a good person, you're good to go. Do I have proof? Isn't, and you're like, well, I don't know for sure. I might be wrong. But you know what's fascinating about that? What's fascinating is that you were indoctrinated into a faith, one that I have immense respect for. I spent two and a half years studying at the Roman Catholic Seminary over the Archdiocese of Minneapolis-St. Paul in between my years studying at the Lutheran Seminary, all right? So I have immense respect. I have friends who are Roman Catholic clergy, very old friends. So I, I say this respectfully, truly. Absolutely. What's fascinating is you say, I don't have proof. I, this is what I believe. And in the end, each of us is responsible for what we believe. Okay, but you say, but I don't have proof. But here's the thing. For all the proof your church or former church claims to have had, you still didn't believe it. So in a way, the proof argument really doesn't matter, doesn't mean anything because they claim to have all the proof or this other denomination claims they have all the answers. Everybody claims they have the proof. Everybody claims that they know what's best. And you silly little girl, you don't know what's best, but you're standing here despite all of their proof. And you're saying, I don't believe all of that. So in other words, the proof isn't always very convincing. It's not. I think actually that just was a light bulb moment for me. I don't even think it's the fear of not having the proof, it's the fear of what those that I've been around for so many years will think if I leave. That's the real and what thing. They're gonna, and what they're going to say. That's it. All right. What are they going to say if I do leave? Because your belief system that you've just explicated for us here says you're not going to fit in, at least not in that parish. I have spent enough time at enough different Roman Catholic parishes, some of friends, and I've, I've studied with the Jesuits, and I've gone on Benedictine retreats, and I had professors who were this and, uh, you know, uh, none this and that and so on and so forth. I've been exposed to a lot, and I know that from one parish to the next, you're getting a very different message preached. In the end, in some parishes, it is, it is about just love and be an instrument of God's love in the world and be compassionate and accept God's grace. And in other parishes, it's about don't have an abortion. And in other parishes, it's about something else. You know, So you're going to get a different message from one church to the next. So you may not, in the end, have to sacrifice your entire faith. You may choose to. You may choose to step away to continue the deconstruction and then go back. But isn't it interesting? I want you to say that again. What was your light bulb moment? That it's not even about the proof. It's what are those that I've been around for so many years going to say that's right. if I leave? And so my or if they even think I'm leaving. That's right. And so my question is, what is the one sentence above all else that you most fear hearing? from those who know you or from anyone? What is the one sentence that would hurt the most or that you most fear? What's the one sentence that would just be like a dagger in your fucking heart? More guilt and shame. And in, and what would this sentence be that would hurt the most? To either hear someone say to you or to know they're thinking about you. To know that they're thinking that I'm not living the way I'm supposed to, she, that I'm not she's following not, she's not the teachings, that she's not following the teachings as they've been taught to her, that she knows that she's supposed to. Ah, she's not following the teachings that she's been taught, uh, that she knows she's supposed to. So you're basically being a bad girl. Yes. Okay, got to ask the question, who is the one person that you either most fear saying that sentence or thinking that about you, or 
who's the one person that would be most likely to say that or think that about you? Probably someone from my dad's family. Who specifically? Who's at the top of the list? My aunt. All right, your aunt. So, and it would that would hurt the most or she'd be the one most likely to say it? She'd be the one most likely to say it. All right, even more than your own mother or your own father? Oh, absolutely. And it would hurt coming from your aunt? It would. And yet what's interesting is you have a desire to basically, you know, step away from your faith for a while and, uh, or at least, you know, go on your own walk for a while. And yet you don't want to do it because you fear ultimately getting the line. She's not doing what she's told. She's a bad girl. And you fear it most coming from your aunt. Your aunt has that much power over you to keep you from going in the direction of your own heart. And has it occurred to you that God wrote a message on your soul that no one else can know? God wrote a message to you. See, in the Christian story, when Jesus was crucified, what happened? We know that the curtain in the temple was rent in two, okay? That the curtain that separated where the congregation was from the Holy of Holies, where only the priests could go and talk to God, that the curtain, that curtain was destroyed. Jesus crucified, he, he breathes his last, and the curtain in the temple was rent into. Well, what the hell does that mean? It's a metaphor. It's a, it's a symbolic, but it's also uh, intended by Christianity largely to be taken literally, that we no longer needed the high priest to talk to God for us, that we now had direct access to the Holy of Holies. We now had direct access to God. And what that means is that God speaks individually to each of us. And there's not a person on earth that can tell you what God is speaking to you, except you. That for those who believe in God, God speaks directly to their soul. That when God created you, and I talk about this in my book, there's a hole in my love cup. I talk about it in there and I talk about, think of it this way, that when you were, when you were born, when you were created, God implanted a chip inside of you, right? Like a computer chip, Intel, right? Pentium. And implanted it, not planted it, and on it was written everything about you what your favorite color would be when you were eight versus when you were 42, what your favorite flowers would be in your 20s, whether you'd be a you know, good gardener or whether you'd hate gardening and you know, whether you enjoy sports or you know, if your favorite uh, orchestra instrument is the cello or the oboe. Okay, all of that was written on who you are. And when we're at our greatest sense of peace and at our greatest sense of calm is when we removed all the things that are obstructing us wiring ourselves to that chip. See, when the child is young, what happens? I wire the, my child to my chip to a large degree, and I teach him my values, right? Look both ways before crossing, always be nice to old people. Um, you know, the, all those things, study hard, you know, work hard, but play, have fun. All of my values, but the problem is when that child reaches 10 or 11 or 12, we never dewire them from my chip and begin to rewire them to their own chip because the truth is God is speaking to that child. And as long as I keep that child wired into my values, strictly my values, because I'm doing it for the child's own good, my job to tell you what to do, as long as I'm keeping you wired into me, I'm blocking God's work in your life because I'm keeping you dewired from your direct connection to your soul where the chip, where the purpose that God has written on your soul is. And that dissonance that we feel, that, that unrest in our soul is when we're not connected to the person God called us to be, created us to be, and only you can know. No one else can know. 
You know, it's really interesting in this room right now that I'm in, I'm in with two other people. Casey is over in the studio and I'm right here next to Rob. And you know that Rob has profound knowledge and love for music. We all love music, but Rob's on a different level. Rob's extraordinarily intelligent, has a knack for technical things. Very, very good at converting head knowledge through his hands and, and to make this adjustment and that adjustment and to hear things with his ears. And I have none of those gifts. I have gifts in other areas and passions in other areas. And yet this production needs both of those. We, uh, KC runs all of the creative and a lot of the business side and she has some of our best insights. Her brain is different. Yet this whole project of helping people around the world requires all three of us plus a few other uh, supporters that we have who are instrumental. And so the notion that someone can possibly know what God wrote on your soul is ludicrous. And it requires courage because ultimately it's this, Rachel. You have a choice in life. And the choice is simply this. As a person of faith, to the degree that you still are or whatever, I'm going to speak to you as you are. As a person who is wrestling with her faith, I'm going to speak this to you. If it is true that God speaks to us from that soul, if it is true that there is a God, let's run with it, okay? Because I have plenty of listeners who say, oh, hell no, I don't want to listen to this crap. Okay, but just indulge me. Listeners who don't believe in God or ag agnostics, please just indulge me. If God speaks to us from our soul and speaks a message unique to you, I mean, nowhere in the Bible does it say, Sven, when you do your 88th show of the podcast, be sure to tell Rachel not to, you know, uh, do her hair that way or whatever. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's silly. My name is nowhere in the Bible. So the notion that God is worried about the, or is speaking through the Bible on all the specifics of my life is ludicrous. It's general principles. We then mediate that. Even uh, the Apostle Paul says, you must, we must each hew to our own conscience. By conscience, it's that voice of God speaking from within. We have direct access. And so my question to you is this, Rachel, if God is in fact speaking to you from within, but your auntie and your relatives and your church are speaking a different message to you from without, who are you more loyal to? The voice of God speaking from within in the depths of your soul or the voice of everyone else who wants to tell you what you should do? It should be God. I think I've just been so wired for so many years to be a people pleaser and to listen to what everybody else is telling me about what I should do, what I should say, how I should live, that I don't know how to dewire myself and really listen That's right. to God, that, if I'm being completely honest. Well, and you have been completely honest, and you even said, it's not so much that I'm worried about hell, I'm worried about what others are going to think. So it's not even that I don't know how to dewire. I'm terrified of the shit I'm going to eat and the heat I'm going to endure, even if I did you could hear God's voice clearly, which you can with regard to heaven and hell. You've already said it. And yes, you're afraid. And do you remember what uh, Jacqueline said in the earlier part of the show? Jacqueline said that the biggest crime that my mother committed was she made me doubt my inner voice. All that of those. When she oh, said that, that was a huge moment for me. I'll bet it was. I'll bet it was. That was a huge, like, I wanted to, like, unmute and go, I am right there with you. <laughs> that right there. That's it. And see, that's the thing. And you've got an auntie who has so much power over you and whose thoughts or words you fear. You know, you have her saying, well, you're not following the teaching. You know what it should be. And the implicit message is you're a bad girl. You're a bad girl, right? And that's scary. Exactly. That's right. And the bottom line is if God has written something on your soul, then that's God talking. 
And uh, yeah, that's kind of important. I mean, I realized too, like it's not just my aunt. I kind of been realizing the last few days too that it comes from when the trauma first started when I was 12, that if I said no, if I tried to make it stop, there were consequences. You had no power. Was I prepared? That's right. Exactly. But was I prepared? Right. Even if I could get it to stop, was I prepared for the consequences that were going to come Amen. with my speaking up? And the answer was no, no, I was not. You were a fucking child. You were doing your best. You were trying to stay alive. You were trying to survive and you did your best. And they took advantage of that and they squ- choked the vo- your voice right out of you. And they choked the God voice speaking from within that, you know, from the mouths of babes. And, you know, Jesus says, let the children come to me. And, and, and so, but we so devalue, discredit the voice of the child, especially when we're trying to make sure we ram plenty of our religion down their throat, because ours is the one true religion. And trust me, the Catholics aren't the only one. Your particular parish is not the only religion or only parish that thinks that sort of thing. Plenty of the people from the uh, denomination I came from. Uh, who thinks similarly. So I, I get it. And I'm in no way trying to demonize your religion. I'm a huge fan of it. And it's done so much good in the world. A lot of pain, but what group of people hasn't? All right. And I'm not exonerating it or letting it go. I'm just saying that um, you've had a lot of pain in your past. And now you are a 32-year-old adult and you are responsible to the voice of God speaking inside of you. And the truth is, God often calls us to do some funky things. I felt called to go and live on the street, give up all my life possessions, and live among and work with the homeless. That was weird. You don't think people thought I was a freaking wingnut for doing that? Half the stuff in my life, at least half, people are like, you're an idiot. In my parish, I don't because we get told that a lot, that that's really what we're supposed to do Uh, is we're supposed to give up everything. We're supposed to go and be humble and live, you know, among the lowly and, you know, we're supposed to just be like, you know, the meek will inherit the earth. That, That's you know, right. You're supposed oh. to be meek and humble. And I like- hear you. I hear you. My father was Lutheran clergy. Four of my uncles were Lutheran clergy. One was a missionary. I was a Lutheran pastor. I totally get all of that. I hear you on that. In this particular case, being I was about your age or slightly older, it was a choice. It was my choice as an adult. And we are responsible for our choices. And you are responsible for listening to the, the voice of your own soul. That is what you answer to. And at some point, you have to believe that your voice matters and that it means, yes, disappointing your aunt. Yes, your father, your mother, your brother, your cousin, your uncle, your auntie, who, grandma, whatever it might be. But at what point does do you live trusting that God has entrusted you with a voice? God trusts you to live your life. God says, you're smart. You are my child in whom I am well pleased. Now go and do what I've put you on this earth to do. And don't listen to your auntie. You're a big girl now. You're a grown-ass woman. Stand up and do what I put you on this earth to do. If God came to you tonight and said that, whispered that shit in your ear, in a way that you know it was unequivocally like God, like power of the universe sort of thing, and God just whispered in your ear, you know, your auntie's a good sport, but she she needs to fuck off on this one. Just do what I fucking told you to do. I've put it on your heart, now do it. Would you do it? Yes, in a heartbeat. All right. All right. And just out of curiosity, if a week later God came to you and said, now I want you to do this instead, and it was basically 180 degree opposite, would you do it? I would have to think about it. <laughs> so <laughs> even though it's it's like the ultimate power, Zeus, Thor, God, power of the universe, you'd have to take a minute. Like, hey, God, I, I know you're going to smite me and so forth, but I don't know if I can trust you anymore. I have some questions. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's a mark of good faith. Hey, let me tell you, I, I was raised by a pastor and pastor's wife, and uh, I was taught that questions are a mark of good faith because I know when I'm asking a question of someone, I'm stepping towards them. I'm not stepping away from them. And that's interesting because I was taught in my faith and in my parish, you don't question. Either you believe the teachings or you don't. No, There's no in between. No. If you're questioning, it means something is wrong. Right. Well, and, and the truth is that doesn't hold up to uh, sort of biblical review because even Jesus questioned when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's saying, Lord, you know, God, if you, if you have a second plan, could you please take this cup from me? Oh, wait a minute. No, he already knew what his fate was supposed to be. It's like, if that were really how God played, God would have been, shut the fuck up and go do what you're told, you know, or he would have been thrown out of the faith because, hey, you don't get to question, but Jesus was questioning in that moment. The disciples questioned all the way along. And when, uh, when uh, Mother Teresa's personal journals came out in, what was it, the 2000s, they discovered that she had had, what, a 20-year crisis of faith? This woman that, that Catholics and Christians around the world see as this titan of faith. Had a, had a faith crisis. And, and let me tell you, the clergy and the nuns and the leaders that have most spoken to my own questions and my own wrestlings when I was a Christian leader or when I was growing up in the Christian church are the ones who had wrestled with the questions themselves. You know, who had, who had, they'd, it, 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 they'd wrestled to the depths of them, doubting God's existence or wondering how can, uh, you know, the whole question of... Um, theodicy, how can God, a good God, allow suffering in the world? All of these, the great theologians are wrestling with these questions. It doesn't mean they're unfaithful. It means they're so faithful that they have to know and they're wrestling in their heart. That's what a solid faith is, is one that wrestles and wrestles and wrestles and where there are just as many questions and that God made questions as much as God made answers. That's incredibly helpful, Ben, because I've grown up my entire life being told you're not allowed to question. Hey, that's just and if you're that's questioning, so... like you, there's something really wrong going no, on, and no. that's something that you need to go to confession for. Okay, let me tell you something. Last thought, and it's simply this. I want to tell you a little story about the wisest woman I ever met. It was my mother, and she died at the age of 93 back in uh, 2021. And she was pastor's wife. She had grown up uh, in uh, the church, her own, my grandmother, her mother, a country church out in Elmore, Minnesota. My mother was actually in one room schoolhouse, a classmate of Walter Mondale, who was vice president of the United States. They were classmates in a one room schoolhouse, like eight kids, whatever the hell it was. And uh, they had an old country church, country pastor out in uh, East Chain, I believe it was, outside of East Chain, the Swedish Lutheran church. And they brought in a new pastor and my grandmother had a bit of a beef with that pastor. And she basically, in her own, you know, sort of humble way, said, stick it. And she went and started their own church. In her 70s, she was the brought on as the wise old woman in Chapel Proctor on the Malax Band of Ojibwe uh, Native American Reservation and also the Mittawakanton Sioux. They sort of shared a chapel. And in her 80s, she was on a Jewish Christian commune with Ben Katz up in Walker, Minnesota. My mother was a longtime uh, educator and ran uh, massive programs in churches. And at the end of her career, she was teaching at the seminary level. My father was a pastor, four uncles, all that. My point is simply this. I come from a long pedigree of people devoted to the Christian faith and giving their lives to it and leaders in the faith and so on and so forth. And let me tell you what my mother said once. I was about 12 and I had come home from Sunday school 
And I, there were three, three services that day. And uh, John Emerson and I, we were the acolytes for all three services, Preacher's Kid and Preacher's Kid's best friend because we lived on the block. And so at first service, John and I, after we had done our morning paper outs, we, John and I would acolyte. Second service, and then we'd stay in the service and take our sermon notes or whatever. And then uh, second service, we'd uh, light the candles at the beginning and process in, and then we'd slip out the back and we'd go down to Sunday school. And then we'd slip out of Sunday school early, go back up, uh, slip back in, extinguish the candles and recess out of the church. And then for the third service, John and I would, and this is a big fucking suburban church. John and I would um, light the candles, process in, uh, and then we'd slip out the back, but we'd already gone to Sunday school. So we'd run across the street to the parsonage where the pastor lives and we'd watch an episode of Batman, you know, the old ones with Burt Ward, no lie. Or we'd watch... Uh, professional wrestling, right? And uh, back in Minnesota with you know Jesse Ventura and Mean Gene Okerlund and all those guys, Nick Bockwinkle. And then we'd keep an eye on the clock and we'd run back across the street and we'd put out the candles and recess out with the church. All right. And I remember, so then when I come home, the 11.15 service goes to 12.15. I'm home by 12.20 and mom is home. She's probably left early and she's making the Sunday roast, which in our family was the big uh, weekly meal. We ate together all, almost all dinners, but that was the big one. And dad would come home and, you know, from Sunday services, all my siblings would come home and we'd have the meal. But before we had the meal, mom was prepping the meal. She was always prepping meals in the kitchen. And I, we would sit there and talk to her. And I happened to be sitting there talking to her one, one Sunday and telling her presumably about what was going on in Sunday school. And she turned to me and she said, Sven, don't believe everything you hear in church. The pastor's wife. Wow longtime Christian educator, raised in the faith herself, said, Sven, don't believe everything you hear in church. So the message I got growing up, questions are good. Doubt your faith, challenge it, because if it's so flimsy that it can't stand up to questions, what kind of faith do you have in the first place? That the titans of faith, the great thinkers, the great movers, the people who speak to our souls have wrestled with their angels. They have wrestled with the devils. They have wrestled with the questions and they are able to speak to us because in the words of the great American, first American sort of father of American psychology, William James, who was a professor at Harvard, he said, that which is most personal is most universal. That when we wrestle with the depths of our own questions, the, 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 the new questions we come up with or the new wisdom we grow into speaks to others because they're wrestling with the same fucking questions. I invite you, I encourage you, Rachel, to listen to the calling of your soul. God is calling. Thank you, sir. And he has amazing, God has amazing things planned for you. I absolutely believe that, but it takes the courage. Let me ask you this question. What are you feeling right now? What's going on inside of you? Relief. <laughs> because again, I mean, I was, no, because I was always taught for so many years. You don't quite, like when you were saying, you know, your mom said, don't believe you, you know, everything you hear in church. I was taught the exact opposite, which was don't believe everything you hear out in the world. In fact, don't believe anything you hear out in the world. Mm. The only thing that you can believe, the only thing that you can trust in is what you're learning and what you're being taught here in this building, in this parish, in this faith. This is all you need. This is what you need to listen to. Nothing else, no one else, including yourself. Well, and that's just it. So what they're fundamentally saying is you cannot have a personal relationship with God or with Jesus. Any relationship you go have with God has to go through us first. And yes. that goes completely contrary 
to you know what Jesus was about. He wanted to have a personal relationship with you, that God can speak to you. And I think a lot of hurt and a little and some anger too. Sure. Only because the other thing that has really obstructed my healing, I would say too, was when I finally did disclose my kidnapping and sexual assault six years later to two women in my parish that I've been close with. One of them handed me a prayer card that was a novena to Saint Saint Maria Goretti that basically had a line in it that says, "For those who had their baptism, their white baptismal robes." stained and lost their innocence even though it was against their will you still need to go and kneel humbly in holy penance and ask for forgiveness and i was asked if i'd gone to confession oh wow confession yeah right right it's just it's so that's fucked up and as a young girl that's horrible as a young anything as anyone i mean to have that to be taught that is horrible. And I do hope that in your own personal work and in your journaling and so forth, you are continuing to pull up those memories and allow those feelings to come up and the anger and the disappointment and the sad and 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 to really sort those through so that those feelings that accompany all those memories can be released from you. The rage, the anger, the disappointment, the betrayal, all of those feelings, they betrayed you as a young girl. They they it was basically what they said to you there. It was. That was, that's spiritual rape. That is spiritual rape. The other thing they told us too, one of the homilies right around that time too was on martyrdom and how there are children that were martyred in the Catholic church as young as four or five years old. And that that's what God calls us to, that if you find yourself in a situation where you're facing death and it's because of your faith, Martyrdom is the way to go. Like that is what you are expected to do. Well, I and do. In my case with my kidnapping, my life was threatened and I fought instead of complying because I didn't want to die. Good for you. And to hear two Sundays later, well, wait a minute, you know, look at St. Maria Gretti. She fought to the death to keep her virginity. You know, she martyred herself. That's the example that you were supposed to follow and you didn't do it. Right. Yeah. You've got to continue to pull up all of that shame all of the bullshit that just doesn't resonate with who you are now. And the question that you are answering in all of this, the two questions that your soul is whispering into your ear every day is, who the fuck are you really? Who, who are you? Not who does this person say or what does the, this group say you should be? Who are you? And do you have the courage to be who the fuck you really are? I want to thank you, Rachel, for being on the show. This is unlike any show we've done, and you brought a whole new conversation that I really, really am grateful that you did. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. You're welcome, and thank you so much for having me on. I truly appreciate it. And thank you for your help as well. Well, you're welcome, and 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 we thank uh, Jacqueline for the insight she added for you as well. So Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, uh, thank you all for tuning in to the Badass Counseling Show. It's been a fascinating episode, and we went a little longer today, Rob. You know what, Sven, you're always an authority, but today was a whole new level of authority. I appreciated hearing it. Very gracious, very gracious. And it's great to have uh, you and, and Casey you know, backing me up and, and just... We're, we're so fortunate to have such wonderful people who come and, and share and open up and trust us with their stories. And you know, in my faith, we are taught to question everything. I love it. I love it. To all of you tuning in around the world, thank you so much. 
It's been a great, fascinating show. And, uh, you know, let's continue the conversation. And thank you so much for listening and for all of your support, but for all of your questions of us and challenging us here on the show on what we can do better or where we miss the mark, because Lord knows we do at times. Thank you for tuning in on behalf of Rob the Rocket and KC in the booth. Have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day. Have a kick-ass day.